Well, if I haven't introduced myself, my name's Sam. Uh, if, you're, if you're visiting, good to have you this morning. Um, we are going to take a minute and look at Jeremiah, and I'll explain here in a moment, but let's just kind of dive in into it here. Um, you can still put the Daniel slide up. That'll start my timer so I don't go long. Um, there's a little, little clock here that says, don't go past this time. I need it. Um, trust me, you want me to have it. <laughs> What'd you say? I said, oh, I need my timer. Oh, I need my timer. Prima donnas. Can I get my, my latte too, please? Uh, you know, in every long and difficult uh, endeavor, you reach a point where uh, it not only feels preferable to quit, but it actually kind of feels logical to quit. Um, like talking about like, like really hard stuff, stuff that, that you're in and you're going to be in it for a long time and you hit the midway point and it starts to go, I think I just kind of want to be done with this. I just kind of want to be out of this. And then, and then you start to get to a point where you thought, maybe that's the right thing. Maybe quitting is the right thing. Maybe I should get out of this. I'm not going to put too fine of a point on what that might be, but I know we're all feeling that. Uh, for some reason, uh, a month or so ago, I signed up to do um, my first ultra marathon. Um, which is 31 miles up a mountain. And, um, and, I, and it was really interesting. It took me seven hours, and it was absolutely terrible. The last three hours, I was nauseous the whole time. I was just in excruciating pain. And uh, once I hit mile 20, I, I, began to, uh, I began to feel like quitting. And I really thought about it a lot. And I was like, man, I could just quit right now, except I'm out in the middle of the woods. So it was kind of like, how am I going to get home? But, um, but, but I thought about it, especially, you know, whenever I'd come across a road or something, I, thought I could hitchhike, you know, from here. And, um, <laughs> and so you begin, to, you begin to enter into this wrestling match with your former self, you know, uh, and your future self, because your future self is going to be very disappointed in you if you've quit. And, and, and you start to think, what was I thinking? Like, why did I do this? Like, why did I think what YouTube video with 4K cinematic footage showing someone running down a trail for seven hours made me think this was a good idea, right? Um, you, you start to interact with the person who puts you in that position. And you start to ask this question, who put me here and why did they put me here? Now, in, in my particular instance here, I, I have to blame myself because I put myself there. So I'm interacting with my former self. Why did I put myself here? But here's the reality. There are things in life like that where everything in you wants to quit. Everything in you is telling you should quit. And even your own logic saying, maybe I should quit. And, and the only one that you can really blame for putting you there is God. Right? There are certain things that you go through in life that you didn't sign up for. There are certain struggles, certain sicknesses, certain pains, certain tribulations that you're going to go through, and you have no one to question other than God because you didn't necessarily sign up for it. You didn't necessarily choose it. That's just a reality of life. What do we what do, we do when we're in those kinds of, of places? How should we view God when he sits us in a briar patch and he says, I want you to stay there? What do I do about that? Sometimes we can't quit or we won't quit, but, be, you know, we can't quit physically, but sometimes what we do is we just quit emotionally. There's this phenomenon right now. It's like popular, of course, among Gen Z and millennials because we're all lazy, I think. Um, it's called quiet quitting. Have you guys heard of this? It's like, it's like a thing. I don't know. It's called quiet quitting. And it's like, it's like where you don't like your job and you don't really want to be there anymore, but you don't have another job yet. So you don't quit yet. You just quiet quit, which means you just don't stay late. You don't work really hard. You just do the bare minimum, right? You only answer the emails you have to answer and you quiet quit. It's like a thing, okay? Um, now, quiet quitting uh, is, is often the temptation when we're doing something really hard that God has not yet said we can get out of yet. It's like, okay, God, I'll do it. I'll go through this, but I'm going to quiet quit. I'm not really going to like maximize it. I'm not going to lean into it. I'm not going to say, are you doing something here? And, and, and what's, what's going on in the middle of this? How do we as Christians keep from quiet quitting when we're going through really long, really hard circumstances that we want to get out of? Jesus said to his disciples, he said, things are going to get really hard. And then he said this really interesting phrase. He said, by your endurance, you will possess your life. By your endurance or through your endurance, you will possess your life. And what he means by that is your eternal life. And what he doesn't say is he doesn't say by your avoidance, you will possess your life. He says by your endurance. In other words, there are things that you can't go around in life. Life is pain, highness, right? Anyone who tells you otherwise is selling you something. 
thus saith the prince's bride, for those of you that are like, what is he talking about? If you're going to go to this church, you got you to watch Princess Bride because I'm, I'm just going to talk about it all the time. And it's going to be easier for all of us if you just watch the movie, okay? Because otherwise I'm going to have to explain it all the time. Jesus said, by your endurance, you will possess your life. Through your endurance. Not in avoiding it and, 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 and not life as in immediate comfort and, and absence of hardship, but true eternal life in the next stage. That's how we get to it. We got to go through this hard stuff. So what does this have to do with the book of Daniel and Jeremiah, and why are we why are we sort of pausing this week to take to take a look over at Jeremiah? You know, uh, a lot of the books in the New Testament happened around the same time, and they they record different things happening at different, uh, from a different perspective at the same time. So so Jeremiah was a prophet, and he uh, was a contemporary of Daniel. He was a prophet that actually, uh, in many ways, um, he would have been prophesying when Daniel was just growing up. So Daniel probably would have read some of the, 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 the sermons of Jeremiah, okay? Uh, and Jeremiah, his, his ministry kind of transcended the, the exile. He lived before it. He was the one that said it was coming. He was the one that kind of warned the Jews, hey, this thing's going to happen, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to take this long, and here's what God's going to do in it. And then he lived through it. But Jeremiah wasn't one of the, the Jews that went to Babylon. He stayed in, in Jerusalem. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going we're to stay in Daniel, so to speak, but we're going to pan the camera away from Babylon back over to Jerusalem. It's kind of like we're watching a movie and you're like, well, well what's going on back in Jerusalem? Well, let's see. What, what's, what's the exile look like for the Jews that are back in Jerusalem? And, and, and there's not only that, but... but Jeremiah is going to actually write a letter, which is what we're going to look at this morning, a letter back to the exiles. And the reason I think this is appropriate this morning is I, is I sort of said in my opening prayer, is there's some struggling people right now in our church. And, and, and I think this passage is just is particular application to those of us right now who are going through hard things that we don't want to be going through particular struggles, wearing yokes that we don't necessarily want to be wearing. And I think we need to interact a little bit this morning is why, God, why do you put us through these things and how do we get through them without becoming quiet quitters? So that's kind of, kind of the idea. Now, let me just get you back up to speed. If you're joining us this morning, uh, some of this might seem a little confusing to you. I just want to remind you that about 600 years before Jesus came into the world, uh, God put his people, Israel, into exile. Okay? He put them uh, through discipline. He allowed Babylon to, to rise up under the power of King Nebuchadnezzar and to remove a large portion, three sequential waves, a large portion of the Jewish people from their homeland and take them into Babylon. And that's where the story of Daniel takes place. And if you want to learn about more of that, read the book of Jeremiah, because there's a lot that you learn about the exile and what happened, what happened after, what happened before, all that kind of stuff is recorded in Jeremiah. Now, why did God exile his people? Uh, let me explain it this way. Um, this is my wedding ring, okay? This wedding ring, uh, I've done like 50 weddings this, this year, and so many of you know I've, I've said this, Kathy, Dustin. Like, like your, your wedding ring is the sign of the covenant, right? It's the sign, it's the token of the promises that you made at the altar, okay? So when God made covenant with Israel, they, they had a wedding ring. The wedding ring was the token of the covenant that they were in. What was the wedding ring? The wedding ring was the Sabbath, for the Jews, for the Mosaic Covenant, it was the Sabbath. It was the sign that they were in, um, that they were going to be faithful to the covenant of God. So what do you know? For 490 years, Israel took off their wedding ring. Okay? They took off their wedding ring, and they were, they were at the gym flirting with other people with their wedding ring off. And by that, I mean they were inviting idols, worshiping other gods, um, prostituting themselves out to other gods away from Yahweh. And God, who is patient and kind and loves Israel, allowed it to happen for 490 years. So, consequentially, if you do the math, that's 70 Sabbath years that they didn't, that they didn't do. Every seven years, they were supposed to let the land go to sea. They were supposed to let the land rest. It's called the Sabbath year. They didn't do it for 70 sevens. And God decided to discipline them for how long? 70 years. So in other words, God's saying, you are going to take 70 Sabbaths, whether you like it or not. You're going to put your ring back on, and you're going to be faithful. So God is disciplining his, his kids in the, the, the exile. That's what he's doing. Now, the first fall 
of Jerusalem. Um, it happened in waves, remember? It was unprecedented, and because it was unprecedented, therefore it was misinterpreted. What I mean by that is the Jews had gotten so close for so many years to getting overtaken by other empires like the Assyrians, but it never quite got all the way into Jerusalem. Something would always happen. God would always intervene. God would always come through. His people would always at the last minute repent and find themselves on their knees, and God would stop um, you know, these empires. But all of a sudden, now something's flipped. Something's changed. God let Babylon overtake Jerusalem. And Nebuchadnezzar, the, the, the king of Babylon, guts Jerusalem, takes all the best, all the smartest, all the brightest, all the most educated, all the, all the royals. Uh, he takes the best of the best, the cream of the crop, and he steals them away. He takes all the vessels out of the temple. We're going to read about this next week. Uh, he takes all the vessels out of the temple and puts them in storage in Babylon. And the Jews are stunned. They're thinking, God, why would you let this uncircumcised, polytheistic, pagan king come in here and sack your city? Why would you let him come in here and take the glory from your people? It's unprecedented and therefore it's misunderstood. See, they just assume that God is uh, his, his highest concern is them maintaining their, their national sovereignty um, in, in their, their, their ethnic glory. That's what they just sort of assume. So all this is very confusing. And all this sort of matters. Okay, follow me. This is all very confusing for the exiles, for, for both the ones that are still in Jerusalem and for the ones that are now in Babylon. They're very confused. Why would you do this, God? What are you doing here, God? And so they do what, what we all do. They go looking for prophets, when we don't understand our circumstances, we, we look for prophets. We look for someone that can help us understand the mind of God, help us understand the will of God, okay? So what happens is Nebuchadnezzar, after he takes the first wave of the Jews, he, he implants for himself a vassal king. You know what a vassal king is? You know what a vassal state is? It's a state that has uh, seemingly has some measure of sovereignty, but really falls under the overarching power of the empire, it's the same thing Rome did when they overtook uh, uh, Jerusalem and when they overtook Palestine, right? They made Herod a vassal king. It was a vassal state. So, so God, um, Nebuchadnezzar does that and he puts Zedekiah as the king and Zedekiah swears allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar, which was the right thing to do because that's actually what God said to do. He said, I want you to do that through the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, now, Here's where it gets interesting. Now, we're not going to go back and look at Jeremiah 27 and 28, but I'm going to give you just briefly kind of what takes place here. King Zedekiah, Zedekiah this vassal king, he, he starts to go, you know what? This can't possibly be God's will that we surrender to Babylon. He goes, Something, something's got to change here. I, I, I think I'm going to find me a prophet who's going to tell me what I want to hear, which is what we do, right? We're really good at finding people that will tell us what we want to hear. Okay, so he does. He, he calls a, a conference together and he pulls all the important people. This is all back in Jerusalem. All the important people back together. And he's, he's, he wants to, to explore the idea of what would it look like to rebel against the power of Babylon. Maybe, maybe Egypt will back us. You know, Israel, one of their mistakes was they always look to Egypt thinking Egypt's gonna kind of come to their rescue, be their ally. Maybe Egypt will back us. Let's, let's figure it out and let's invite some of the prophets of God and let's hear what God thinks about this idea. So he holds this retreat, this conference, conference, and he invites some keynote speakers. The first keynote speaker is named Hananiah. Can you say Hananiah? Okay, I'm just making sure you're awake. Hananiah is a very popular prophet, at least that's what he's saying he is. Hananiah is the guy that's got thousands of followers on his Instagram. He's the guy that's got that really great, like, Osteen smile, you know, with caps and all that. He's the guy that, like, you see his book when you're in line at Fred Meyer next to Oprah Winfrey. It's like, everybody likes Hananiah. He's like the guy that manages somehow to just be invited to all the Hollywood parties and everything. He's really likable. And the reason everybody likes Hananiah is he's always got good news. He's always just ready to tell you about how you can have your best life now, right? So man, he's, the, like, he's the keynote speaker. And so Hananiah gets invited to this, this conference to, to figure out if they're going to rebel against, uh, against Nebuchadnezzar. But there's another speaker who shows up, the bummer man, the prophet nobody likes, the prophet everybody beats up. And his name is Jeremiah. And Jeremiah has been the bummer man for decades. He's been the guy who's been forever, always negative. Negative, 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 Jer Jeremiah. 
You know, like, what's the deal? Like, like, can you give us some good news, right? Well, God calls Jeremiah to show up to this event, and he calls him to show up wearing what we'll call an enacted parable. He says, I want you to go into your barn, Jeremiah, and I want you to pull out a yoke. And I want you to put the yoke on your shoulders. Man, being a prophet in the Old Testament would not be fun. I'm just going to tell you right now. I mean, God had these guys do some crazy stuff. One of the, like, I think it was Ezekiel or one, I don't remember who it was, but I had to cook food over, over dung. That's like, like lay on your side for like, you know, years and years. I mean, just crazy stuff, right? So God tells Jeremiah to go get a yoke, put it on his shoulder. He says, now I want you to march into this, 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 this conversation and I want you to show them this yoke as a sign of the fact that God says, I put the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar on your shoulders. I put it there. And you're going to wear it because that's what I'm telling you to do. So Jeremiah shows up with the yoke. And, and Hananiah, the false prophet, right, he takes this, he takes this moment to, to try to, um, to steal the show away from Jeremiah. He goes up to Jeremiah and he grabs the yoke. Again, you can read all about this in 27, 28. He takes the yoke in front of everybody. He takes the yoke off Jeremiah's shoulders and he snaps it over his knee. And he goes, thus saith the Lord, we're going to be out of discipline in two years. Now, it's only a little ways into the 70, right? And I can just imagine Jeremiah just kind of sitting there watching this happen. And everybody's clapping. Yeah, Hananiah, you're the man. Like, you're right, man. Best life now. Woo, this is going to be great. Thanks for the good news. And Jeremiah's kind of going, well, that'd be sweet. But let's see what happens. Well, I'll tell you what happens. Hananiah drops dead. <laughs> pretty, pretty quickly. Pretty quickly he drops dead, which is never a good sign for a prophet, right? Um, <laughs> If, yeah, if you, if you make some prophecy like, oh, no, when the rapture's coming, and then you, like, die two days later, I'm like, I'm not listening to you. Okay. Um, so, so not a good thing. So Hannah and I drops dead. Now, why does all this matter? This is all the backstory to chapter 29. Because here's the thing. The Jews in Jerusalem, they're just wondering, what's going on? I mean, are we going to get, are, are, we, are people, are our kids and daughters and sons, are they going to come back? You know, I mean, I mean, you think about like what's going on in Israel right now. You got like hundreds of hostages that are over, and like that's kind of what it would have felt like for the Jews. They were like, "Man, our, our kids have been taken away from us. They're in Babylon. They're 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 they've been stolen from. Are we going to get them back?" And then the Jews that are in Babylon are wondering, "Are we ever going to go home? Are we going to have to live here forever?" Like, what what's the what's going on? I mean, I can't even get I can't even get like breakfast without pork. You know, like there's not even a place to get. That's an ethnic Jewish joke there. Um, because get it? Because they're in Babylon and there's the pork, they ham, because they're Gentiles. Okay. I just, you guys weren't laughing, so I feel like I got to like make sure you know what I was trying to say. Anyways, they're, they're just wondering, like, what is going to happen? And, and because these false prophets, both in Jerusalem and in Babylon, are pumping all of this false news into the air, they're confused. They're confused. And so Jeremiah pulls out a piece of parchment and God compels him to sit down and write a letter to the Jews who are in exile, and it's Jeremiah 29. Anybody familiar with Jeremiah 29, 11, by the way? It's kind of like a very fridge magnet verse, for I know the plans I have for you, right? It's a beautiful verse, and we're going to look at that. Um, <laughs> you need to know the backdrop for that verse, and that's why I tell you all this, because it's, it's actually really, really important. It is an encouraging verse, but not for the reason people usually say. People usually say, Jeremiah 29, 11, man, like, you're not going to have to go through hard stuff. It's like, actually, Jeremiah 29, 11 means you are going to have to go through hard stuff. Okay? Sorry. Let's read it. Verse 1 of Jeremiah 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to, sur to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into the exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers, and departed from Jerusalem. So it's the first, first wave of the exile there. The letter was sent by the hand of Elessa, the son of Shaphan, and uh, Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. God has got all that? Okay. None of that matters really right now. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Okay, here's the message. The God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. 
but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Isn't that kind of interesting? I mean, you'd expect God to be like, don't get comfortable. You're in Babylon. Don't you dare buy a house. Don't you dare plant a garden. Don't you dare get married. Like, it's all about the land. It's all about the homeland. It's all about your ethnicity. Don't, don't, don't flourish in Babylon. But actually, God says the exact opposite. He says, get comfortable. He says, sit tight. He says, make a life for yourself in Babylon. Okay, he doesn't say build a bunker and buy a bunch of freeze-dried food, right? Get your guns and get ready. You know, he says, just get comfortable. He's like, I know when I'm going to take you out of here. I know exactly when it is. And I want you to just live your life and trust me. So God says, sit, twi- sit tight. Now, here's, the, here's where we get to our outline. The question is, how do we do that? How do we sit tight when we are in extremely uncomfortable circumstances? So I'm going to give you, if you have your outline there, you, you only give you three keys to enduring the inescapable. Three keys to enduring the inescapable. And we'll see these as we continue to read the passage here. Number one, if you want to write it down, key number one is ignore those who tell you that God's will is around hardship, not in it. Ignore those who tell you that God's will is around hardship and not in hardship. Let's read verse 8. So God goes on, he says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. Did I not send them, declares, or I did not send them, declares the Lord, he says. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So, number one, ignore those, I already told you, ignore those who tell you God's will is around hardship not in hardship. Hananiah and the false prophets were popular. The reason they were popular is because they told everybody what they wanted to be told. If you ever want to be really, really famous and really, really popular, just tell everybody what they want to hear. If you want to be a disliked, beat up prophet like Jeremiah, tell people the truth, okay? Um, You know, there's a reason Jesus was crucified. It's because he was a true prophet. He was the true prophet. One of Satan's oldest tricks uh, is to tempt us with something that God will give us, but has not yet seen fit to give us now. I want you to remember that. Satan's smart. He's smart, okay? He's been around a lot longer than us. He's good at what he does. He knows what plays to play, and he plays them well. And one of the number one plays that Satan does is he says, hey, God said he's going to give you that, right? Yeah, he wants to give it to you now. He, He wants to get you off God's timeline. This is actually what Satan did to Jesus when he was tempting him in the wilderness. Do you remember? So the Holy Spirit, after Jesus was baptized, before Jesus started his public ministry, the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness, uh, and he fasted. He was starving and alone in the desert for 40 days, 40 nights, right? And uh, at the end of that time, Satan comes when Jesus is in his weakest point, and he begins to tempt Jesus, and he tempts him three different ways. And there's a common denominator in each of those temptations. The, the common denominator is, is that Satan is trying to get Jesus to take what will be his and to take it now. He's trying to get Jesus to take the crown without the cross. What does he do? He takes him up to a high place. He says, look around. See all that? See the glory? I'll give it to you now. I'll give it to you now. And there's a sense in which, you know, this age, this world, this dominion has been turned over for a time to Satan. So Satan's like, yeah, I'll give it to you. You can have the authority, right? And then he takes him up to a high tower and he says, why don't you jump off this high tower? He takes him up to the, the, the corner of the temple, right? Where there's be lots of crowds and lots of people and everybody's watching. And remember, this is before Jesus started his ministry. So, so it's, it's like this desire of Jesus's heart to begin to come out as the Messiah. And basically he goes, all right, Jesus, now's your time. Jump off. The angels will deliver you and everyone will cheer and we'll kick this messianic thing off. But the problem was is that the, the timetable for Jesus was, no, Jerusalem's not for three years. Because when I go to Jerusalem, I mean, Jesus visited Jerusalem, but when I go to Jerusalem, it's kicking off the crucifixion. So Satan's trying to pull him out of the timeline. The other one is he says, Jesus, why don't you just, you're starving. Why don't you just take that stone and turn it into bread? 
Well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that is, is that he's trying to get Jesus to lessen the suffering that the Holy Spirit has allowed into his life. He's trying to get Jesus off the path. He's trying to get Jesus to, to not despise the shame. He's trying to get Jesus to go, you know what? I'm okay. Uh, or he's trying to get Jesus to go, I'll just take the glory now. Crown without the cross. It's the same temptation that the enemy does for us all the time. Because here's the reality. There's going to come a day when we will no longer suffer. You might write this down. This, I, didn't, I didn't make this up, but this is a really good thing to memorize. We are saved from sin's penalty. Amen? We are being saved from sin's power. That's called sanctification. That means that you are, through this life, you are being grown to maturity to, to sin less. You're not sin less, but you sin less, right? We will, future, we will be saved from sin's presence. That is the program of redemption. God has saved you from sin's penalty. Done. Finished. It is accomplished. God is saving you from sin's power. God will save you from sin's presence. What Satan wants you to do is he wants you to come in. He wants to come in with false prophets. He goes, you know what? You shouldn't be having any problems in this life right now. You should, you, you should have the kingdom in its full um, finished mode. You should have it now. You should have it in your life now. And that's exactly how Satan tempts Jesus. It's exactly how he tempts us. It's exactly how he's tempting the exiles. Surely God would not let his beloved suffer. Surely, if you are the children of Israel, God would get you out of Babylon now, right? Because the assumption is, the misunderstanding is, is that there is no use in struggle. That God's not doing something with our hardship. Satan uses circumstances to get us to question the goodness of the one who allows them. Like I said in the beginning, right? When you're struggling, you're going, who put me here? And Satan is always ready to go, well, maybe that one that put you there is not good. Maybe you should take things into your own hands. That's what he did in the garden, right? Listen to this. Someone will always be there in your life. Someone will always be there to tell you that disobeying God is not only acceptable and permissible, but also that hardship can be avoidable. There will always be false prophets around you. There will always be people in your life that will just be so ready to take the yoke off your shoulder and say, ah, let's snap that. I have the method. I have the way. I can tell you how to break that. Surely God would not want you to have any grief in your life. Be aware of that. As Christians, it's important that we know how to suffer well. We join into the suffering of Christ and we share his cup when we do so. Uh, I want to bring up an example, and I'm going to try to do so trepidatiously. Andy Stanley um, hosted a conference recently uh, for the purpose of raising awareness for LGBTQ parents. And I thought that was noble, and I thought that was a good idea. Uh, the, the desire, I think, originally was to help parents that have kids that are wrestling with that stuff um, or embracing that stuff to know how to do it. And I thought, well, what a great idea. But here's where it got a little wonky. Um, most of the speakers that were on the stage were actually not just um, believers who were wrestling with same-sex tendencies or wrestling with transgender ideology, but were actually non-Christians who were propagating worldly thinking about it. And he even invited a, a same-sex, uh, or he invited a gay couple that's claiming to be Christian on the stage as sort of an example of what life can look like to be gay and to be Christian. And so, obviously, people kind of went, what's going on, Andy? <laughs> what's the deal, right? And all of us are kind of tuned in, right? Well, here's what happened next. Andy Stanley, taking a lot of heat about this, um, he, he preached a sermon to his church to try to respond to some of this stuff. And, and I listened to the sermon because I, I just was curious. You know, what's he going to say? Here's what he said. He said a lot, but, but what he said was, he said, listen, he's like, we believe in traditional, we believe that the, in the biblical um, paradigm of traditional, traditional uh, marriage between man and woman. I was like, oh, good. Okay, thank you. Because that's what the Bible says. But then he added this. And I'm, I'm bringing this up for a reason, okay? Because I want you guys to be a flock that recognizes false prophets, Okay? Otherwise, you're going to be devoured. He finished with this. He said, however, he said, we recognize that God's ideal is one man and one woman. However, for those who are same-sex attracted, that are not attracted to the opposite sex, 
who have a desire for monogamous relationship and a covenant marriage. He said, we, we recognize that God's ideal simply may not be enough. Okay. Like, okay. What's wrong there? Um, I share Andy's heart for those that are same-sex attracted. It is something that they did not choose, more than likely. Something like all of us are born with sin proclivities, areas that, that we are prone to sin in. And, uh, and I no way, in no way rejoice in the fact that they live in a sinful world with sinful instincts and have to deal with those like we all do. I in no way rejoice um, in someone that feels like they're in the wrong body. I think there's a sense in which we are all feel like we're in the wrong body because we live in a broken and fallen world. But the problem with what Andy is saying there is Andy is saying that perhaps the desire to be whole in some kind of a relationship is a greater reward than the desire to honor the Lord. That perhaps your desire for happiness in this life trumps God's desire for you to be holy in this life. And what that does is it takes my desire to not be single and it puts it above my desire for the Lord. There are many, countless, um, same-sex attracted Christians that are faithfully following Jesus and have chosen a life of celibacy simply because they wanted to honor the Lord over what they wanted to honor in, in, their, in their flesh. And interestingly, one of those is Sam Albury. Sam Albury is a Christian writer who is same-sex attracted but has chosen to put that to the side to honor the Lord, to live a life of singleness. And his response to Andy Stanley's comment was, hmm, that's interesting, Andy. That, what you just said, is exactly what Satan tells me every morning. In, in other words, Satan comes in to my room and he says, you know what, does God really want you to be single? Does God really want you to be uncomfortable? Wouldn't God want you to turn the stone into bread? Why would he want you to be hungry? Why would he want you to be lonely? Why surely God wants you to be in this, in this relationship. I mean, it's the desire of your heart to have, you know, to have this, this, this sweet, meaningful marriage relationship. That's very dangerous. And what it does is it, 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 it elevates the now over, over the future. It elevates the joy of submitting and surrendering all areas of life to God. You know, every single one in this room is gonna be asked at one point to lay aside your comfort and your desires for the Lord. Jesus said, take up your cross, follow me. So it's not as though same-sex attracted people are the only ones that are gonna have to lay something aside. All of us will at some point. And we should have compassion for those that are struggling with that. But what we call them to is we call them to a greater joy. We say, you know, God is better than marriage. Shouldn't we all be believing that? Even the person that's so obsessed with getting married, all they can think about is getting a spouse. Like, we need to tell them the same thing. Hey, you know, God is better than getting married. God is, the person that's infertile, right, and, and, and just, just cannot understand why God would not let them have children, what is the good news for them? God is better than having children. And, and, and if he wants to give you that, we're going to ask him for that. We're going to ask you for that. But at the end of the day, God is the ultimate treasure. He's the ultimate reward. So there will always be people in your life who will tell you that God doesn't necessarily want you to have to give up what he's asked you to give up. Beware of it. Beware of those false prophets. What happens when we try and skip God's programmed events? Well, we don't actually skip the hardship. We just short circuit what he was trying to do in the midst of it. Because see, God's trying to do something in us more than he's trying to do something through us, okay? He's trying to prepare you for eternal glory. Your life should be fully rooted in the next stage, not in this age. Your, your identity is in Christ. Your joy is in Christ, right? And what we do when we say, surely God is only about my best life now, we short-circuit his masterful work of sanctification in which he's preparing us for eternal glory, in which he's purifying our faith, purifying our trust. And this is why Christians must suffer and we must suffer well. This is why Christians do not quiet quit. This is why Christians don't go, I'm not just going to passively be grumpy that I have to go through this. We go, Lord, you're doing something here. You're also the great physician. I can ask you to take this. Jesus did it to the Father, didn't he? If you want to take this cup from me, take it. But I know you're doing something here. There are three 
Let me just give you three examples of false prophets in our culture that you need to watch out for. Who are the Hananiahs of our day? Number one, the false prophets of prosperity theology. Um, they're false prophets. You may have heard it as name it and claim it, kingdom now. What this means, what this is, is it's an idea that the future kingdom, where there is no more sickness and no more sin and no more brokenness and no more hurt, should and can be here now to the extent that we believe it. So if you have cancer, that cancer will be gone if you simply claim the victory. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's damnable. It's destructive, and I'm tired of seeing it hurt the sheep. I'm, sorry, I'm tired of seeing it harm people. Here's what's wrong with it. It rightly embraces the promises of God, but it wrongly applies the timing. We are right to believe that God will take every tear, that God will take every struggle, that God will take every sin proclivity, that God will take everything that is hard in this life, but when is up to him and what he will do with it in the meantime. It is wrong in that, in that it disciples believers to put their faith in their own faith rather in, than the faithfulness of God. What you're doing is you're climbing a mountain and you take the clip that's meant to be on the mountain and without realizing it, you clip it to your own belt. And I've seen Christian after Christian after Christian fall from faith because they never really anchored to God's faithfulness. They anchored to their own ability to have faith. You see the difference? So God doesn't heal you. What happens? I didn't have enough faith. So either God's not good, God's not real, or I just don't have enough faith. Either way, I've shipwrecked myself rather than anchoring yourself to God himself and his faithfulness. This theology endears the heart to idols, the idols of comfort and ease and the senses, while eroding the believer's ability to suffer with patient endurance. Okay? Let me give you another one. This one's particularly popular in our culture right now. I'm calling it the, the cult of wellness. I didn't coin that. Somebody else calls it that. The cult of wellness. What do I mean by that? The cult of wellness says this. Sure, Jesus, he's fine. That's great. But what we really need is a good therapist, good gut health, self-awareness, inner healing, essential oils, and a good Pilates class. <laughs> Syncretize all those into some kind of witch's brew, and you're the man. You're the woman, right? I mean, we laugh, but it's true. You know, it, it's, it's true. Like, the, this is the religion of our day. We have, we have made the transcendent self. So in order to, to become transcendent, I need to access self. And who am I going to go through to do that? I'm not going to go to the priest. I'm going to go to the therapist because the therapist is going to help me understand myself and access my true self, right? In this, those prophets see the self as their savior, the therapist as the mediator, and the world as their oyster is the idea, now, I'm not saying don't go to therapy. I'm not saying don't use essential oils. I'm not saying we shouldn't use some good, you know, get some good, good health, gut health. Hey, pick up some good kombucha on the way home. It's great. Like, I need better gut health. That's all great, okay? That stuff's fine. The problem is, is when we start to look to these things that are self-improvement, self-help as the gospel. The problem is when we have false prophets coming up and snapping the yoke on our knees saying, no, 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 the only reason you're not happy is because you need X, Y, and Z. Don't listen to those false prophets. By all means, try to get better health. By all means, seek emotional intelligence. By all means, figure out the traumas in your life. That's all important. But none of it's necessarily going to completely relieve the hard things you're going through. Let me give you a third one. Another false prophet in our culture right now is the quality of life legalism. Quality of life legalism. It says, I can escape hardship in life if I just do the right things. This is a contractual approach to God. This is, if I give God what he wants, he'll give me what I want. That's a lot of the religion, a lot of the, what we consider Christianity in the West is that. It's, I'm going to save sex, you know, till marriage so that God gives me a good marriage. It's, I'm going to tithe so that God gives me more money. It's, I'm going to choose not to sin so that God has to, to give me a good life. That's not worship. That's legalism. That's trying to control God with your behavior. The Christian rather should say, God has given me all righteousness. God has given me all eternal riches. God has given me everything I could ever want, so therefore I will respond in obedience because of worship. 
not some kind of a control. So these are false prophets that, that crop up. And what I want you to do, they're, they're going to they're gonna make a big show and everyone's going to like them and everyone's going to be reading their books and everyone's going to give you their books. You're like, here, read this book. This prophet, so he's going to tell you how to fix your life. In three steps, he's going to tell you how, how, how good your life could be. If you would just name this and claim this, if you would just take this thing, if you just put on this oil, if you just, you know, just get your sex life uh, under control, like everything's going to be great, your whole life's going to be easier, and they're going to snap the yoke over there, and they're going to make a big show, and you're going to be pulled into it. And here's, you know, Jeremiah over here, very uncompelling. Very uncompelling. Now, here's the reality. What are we supposed to do? We are supposed to tune in exclusively. Listen, we are to tune in exclusively to God's certified prophet. Jeremiah was God's certified prophet. Who is our certified prophet? Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1. In the beginning, God, you know, spoke through, or through all the days, God spoke through all kinds of different, through the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken through his son, Jesus Christ. He is the certified prophet. Okay, Jesus is the certified prophet. What does he say that life's supposed to be like? Well, I'll tell you. He said, expect to suffer. Buckle up. He said, expect to suffer. In this world, you will have tribulation. That's John 16, 33. He said, but take heart. I've overcome the world. I've overcome this system of evil. I've overcome this domain of darkness. I've already, I'm already victorious over it. But for right now, for the next however many years you live in this age, buckle up. It's going to get hard. And you need to be prepared for that hardship when it comes because it's coming. We're not, you know, we don't, we don't love to suffer. We recognize that it's coming. And Jesus was trying to prepare them for it. Again, Jesus says, in your endurance, you will gain your life. Luke 21, 19. It is in and through your endurance that you will gain eternal life. He doesn't say, um, he doesn't say in your avoidance. He says in your endurance. And we've built an entire economy around avoiding discomfort, haven't we? Like all the products, they're all about avoiding discomfort. Jesus flips the script and he goes, actually, you're going to gain eternal life through discomfort. We were driving home from something the other day, and my kids were whining about being bored in the back. And my wife and I, like in concert, like in harmony, we both said that you need to be bored. It's healthy. Because <laughs> it's true. They're doing studies now that if we're all neurotic because we're never bored, right? Like we need to do hard things. The problem is we've all made our lives so padded and so cushioned that we're, we're killing ourselves, right? We need to go through hard things. Hard things are how we grow and how we are changed. So, Number two on your outline, it took a long time on that one, I'll speed up. Second key to en enduring the inescapable, the second key is see God seeing you and think about God thinking about you. See God seeing you and think about God thinking about you. Look at verse 11, here's the famous verse. For I know the plans that I have for you. Remember who this is written to. It's written to these exiles that are confused. God, what are you doing? Are you ever going to get us out of here? Are you going to meet us in this? He says, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So what we need to know is we need to know that God knows what he's doing. Right? What we need to know is that God is not absent-minded regarding your situation. We need to know that he has you in his thoughts. He has you on the forefront of his mind, that he are not on the back burner, right? He may not reveal exactly what his plan is to you, but he wants you to know that he certainly has a plan. And one of the reasons that we struggle with this, and one of the reasons we feel like maybe God forgot us, is that we can't multitask, I know some of you are like moms, and you're like, oh, I can multitask. Um, if anybody can multitask, it's moms, right? Um, but they've done studies that have proven that humans literally cannot multitask. It might feel like you're multitasking, but what you're really doing is you're going from one thing to the other, just really, really fast, right? So you're texting, driving, texting, driving, texting, driving, not, right? <laughs> Slam on the brakes. Don't do that. Multitasking is a myth if you're a creature, but if you're an omniscient God with all wisdom and all knowledge and all bandwidth, you know, God can have you at the front of his mind and he can have every geopolitical issue in the world at the front of his mind and he can also be making sure that the orbit of all of the solar system and everything is working perfectly. All of that stuff is at the front of his mind all at the same time. He's got a plan. 
He's thinking about the plan. He's thinking about you. He knows what he's doing. You're not that name that somehow got skipped over at the restaurant when you're starving and you're waiting and like, did they, did they forget us? No, God didn't forget you. He's never surprised or supplanted by anything. And even though we struggle with being absent-minded, God is not absent-minded. And God knows exactly how much hardship he is going to introduce into your life. He's already predetermined how much he will put in, and it's never more than you can handle with his help. Okay? God's careful governor is set before he even hits the gas on your trials. You know what a governor is in a car? to make sure that, the, the, that it doesn't go over a certain amount of RPMs, right? It kicks in. God has already set that up for you. He already knows what lines he's, driv- he's drawn around you and how much he's going to allow into your life. And he knows exactly what you can take on. Psalm 16, verse 5, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. God knows where he's drawn the lines. Philippians 4.10, Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. He writes to the Philippians, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. Remember, he's writing this from prison. Uh, And I know how to abound, and in every circumstance I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. And here's the secret. Here's another fridge magnet verse that we all take out of context. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What's the context of that verse? I can sit in prison, hungry, cold, uncomfortable, through Christ who strengthens me. Not, I can win a touchdown. Okay? He's saying that I can suffer to whatever degree God asks me to suffer because I have Christ in me and he has the victory. Okay? It's not about getting what I want when I want it. It's about enduring patiently through whatever tribulation God introduces into our life. It's the same exact thing we're seeing in Jeremiah 29. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Okay? So, My wife and I have been uh, doing this, this training for, for child care as we do foster care, and, and we've been um, picking up different tools. And one of the things, I don't think we heard it from this first, one of the things that, that my wife picked up that we've been trying to think about is instead of giving your kids a time out, you give them a time in. You guys heard of that? So the idea is like, you know, a lot of times our kids are, are, are sinning or they're doing something they shouldn't do or they're acting out, and we, we want to put them in the corner, you know, and we're, and we're sort of like, and there's, there's a time for that. But the problem with that a lot of times is what the kid might actually be needing is they might be needing security. And by sticking them over in the corner, in some ways, you might actually be working against that. So, so a different approach would be to go, you bring them over, you give them a big hug, you look them in the eyes, and you say, I love you. There's never anything you could do that would make me not love you. I don't love you because of what you do. I love you because you're my son, you're my daughter. And then you address their behavior. Right? What it does is it creates a gospel space to actually deal in honesty with the reality of the issue. That's what we need to get better at doing in church, right? Because what we do is we go, oh, sin, get out, right? Rather, we go, let me tell you what the gospel tells you about your sin. Now let's talk about addressing it. Let me bring you in to a time in. And that's what God's doing here with Israel. He didn't kick Israel out because he wanted them out of his sight. He brought Israel in. He brought them into a time in. He wanted to meet them in the exile. And that's what Jeremiah reminds us of. I got to land this thing. Number three, remember the question is not if God will end suffering, it's when. Remember the question is not if God will end suffering, it's when. Just look at verse 12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the, to the place from which I sent you into exile. Here's just this really last, last point, just really simple. Suffering will end, and this is why we can endure it. Suffering will end. This is not an eternal reality for us. Those of you that are struggling with physical ailments, like you're going to get a new body. God's got an eternal dwelling for you, an eternal place for you, okay? Like an an itchy, smelly, uncomfortable cast 
We wear this life. We wear this world because it helps correct our bones. But as soon as we possibly can, we're cutting that thing off and throwing it in the garbage can. We sign it. We make the best of it. We're living in a broken world. God's using that brokenness to correct us, to disciple us, to grow us, to, 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 to bring maturity in us. But at some point, the cast comes off. So quiet quitting should not be the Christian's nature, right? Quiet quitting is not how we live the, 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 the Christian life. My advice to you would be, and I'm going to skip the last part, just give you one. My advice to you would be to lean in to the hardship. Not all the way, just enough. My dad and I used to go sailing. And um, you, you, can, you can make two mistakes with sailing. You, if you go too far into the wind, it'll knock you over. If you go too far out of the wind, your sails will flap. The goal is to be going like this into the wind, just enough to where it's actually picking the sail up and it's moving you forward. So when, when hard stuff comes into your life, don't run from it, don't ignore it, don't pretend like it's not there, don't let the sails flap, don't, don't dive so far headlong into it that it consumes you and takes your whole, you know, just life, God, what are you doing here? I want to lean just enough far, I just want to lean just far enough into this to where you're actually accomplishing what you're trying to accomplish in me, which is always his glory and your joy, by the way. It's always the outcome, and those two things are the same. His glory, your joy. Your joy is his glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the picture of the exiles and how we see the similarity to our own station, our own place in this life right now. God, we see ourselves getting kind of stir-crazy getting kind of frustrated with the circumstances and not understanding Lord, why maybe you have put us in this. But God, I thank you that just like you wrote to the exiles through Jeremiah, Lord, that, that you sent your son into this world to remind us that you have a plan for us. And that plan was from the foundations of the world. It was lavished on us with all wisdom and prudence, as Ephesians says. God, that you have us on your mind. And Lord, every person that's struggling, would you have them on your mind and you're doing something that is eternal value. God, you will never waste one tear or one ounce of grief. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.